Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Tuesday, the 30th day of November. Yeah, so how many days are there in November? There's 30. How do I know that? 30 days, half September, April, June, and November. Exactly. So last day of the month, December 1st. Coming up tomorrow. That's right. Pretty exciting. Christmas upon us. I'm having a conversation with my older children. Like, why do you guys need presents anymore? It's not like you're children. Like, I mean, come on. What's this all about? You know? And um, they seem to be resentful of that idea. I'm like, okay, like you can resent it all you want, but nonetheless, it doesn't invalidate the idea that once you tap 30 years of age, come on, man, like what do you, what do you need? What do you need other than some kind of trinket, something other than a trinket for me? Hmm? Why? So now Colleen, she's different. She's in a separate category. Everybody else, like, what's up with that? So, anyway, just a thought. Just a thought. Um, 
you know, I, I keep my TV on mute during the day. And so I see what's going on. And for those of you that listen, you know that um, September 11, 2001, taught everybody in the media business about having a television on and things like that. So, so anyway, but I watched Joe Biden talk. Now, I'm not sure what's happening to his eyes, but his eyes seem to be receding into his skull, like going backwards towards the back of his head. So it seems like his eyes are like distant from the opening that his eyelids create, like they're back further. So when I look at him, and then whenever he, he, I see him speaking, he seems to be scolding us. Yeah. And then he just, and then he just, he just turns around and walks away. Like, what the fuck? What is this? What is that? When you don't, you, you come out and you like issue these edicts and stuff like that. And then you just summarily turn around and walk away. The only thing missing is, is, uh, is kind of like from the king and I, right? Him clapping his hands and walking away. Let it be said, let it be done, right? Um, I just find it amusing. I just find it amusing. Um, and I think even more amusing is him talking about running again. <clears throat> and you want to see Democrats sweat? Yeah. Anyway, the president of the United States. Um, so that going on today. The um, the whole latest coronavirus variant dust up. I mean, there's some important information that needs to be had before we lock up the whole world again, right? One would think, right? The world's a different place with people vaccinated to a great extent, to the, to, to the unwashed masses that are not vaccinated. Good luck, right? That's your choice. But we can't lock down the world again. You know, it just seems absurd to me. And again, especially as you dig into this variant, what you see the, the physicians in Southern Africa saying is that the symptoms are mild. Yes, it's a variant, but the symptoms are mild. Hmm. So what does that mean we should actually do? Well, there's, you know, science and then there's politicians. You know, I mean, the the governor of the state of New York reenacted her emergency powers, you know, like, here we go. So, um, yeah, so we have that going for us today. But, uh, yeah, it's, we're getting into the, sun, the Christmas season. As I was driving around, Christmas trees, right? The Christmas tree farms, not farms, what are they? Christmas tree places that sell Christmas trees. Yeah, they've sprung up all of a sudden. So Christmas trees made it. Um, the Christmas lights. Yeah, they're, uh, they're, they seem to be out and about. Um, yeah, you know, so I went into my Canadian dialect right there. And then, um, so I've got to put my Christmas lights up pretty soon. Colleen and I normally go up on the roof. I've always taken my kids on the roof when I go do this stuff. And it's always been a good time. 
I mean, come on, going up on the roof? That's like man shit, right? So when you take your kids up there, um, yeah, my sons loved it. And uh, I tell a story that we, uh, when we were living in North Dakota, we were living on University Avenue near the University of North Dakota, oddly enough. And we had this two-story house, and the top, the roof on the top story was like this very, very steep roof. Yeah. Very steep. And you used to have to crawl out on the point of the roof with a leg on each side and kind of your hands on both sides, and you'd scoot yourself out there. And so the way we did the lights on the front of the house was we had a, a nail coming out of like that apex of the upper roof. And then there was a nail in the lower left-hand corner, right, of the V and a nail in the lower right-hand corner. And so we would pull that wire really tight and then wrap it off, tie it and wrap it off. And so, but somebody would have to go out there and we'd, and we'd mess with the lights, right? Um, and you'd have to kind of, like your head would be extended over the over the roof. And, and like I said, it's very steep. I used to call it special operations, right? So I'd take John and Patrick up there and I'd be fucking with them. No, I'd be fucking with them the whole time. Um, and they'd get, and they would get nervous at first. The first year we did it, they would be, they got nervous and they gradually got better. <laughs> but, and then the lights that went around the side of the house, um, it would take a, you know, pretty tall ladder to do that. Right, so you had the V in the front of the house, and then we lived on a corner, so the long axis of the house. And so those lights, I don't know, 20 feet off the ground. So we'd get this tall ladder, and we'd be up on that. Um, and um, they'd be up on the ladder, and I'd start shaking it. I'd grab the ladder. <laughs> I'd grab the ladder. And there's, I don't know, there's a foot of snow or more on the ground. You know, there's snow everywhere and up in North Dakota. And they'd be trying to put the the lights on the side of the house. And I'd start shaking the ladder, right? And they'd start screaming and yelling. And I'd be like, hey, this is making you a better, (laughs) this is making you a better human being. Okay, any fool can do it when there's no pressure on, okay? The question is, as I'm shaking the ladder, can you do it under pressure? Dad, stop, stop. Uh, and then they'd kind of try to come down the ladder, which would make me shake it even more so they'd have to jump off at about the eight-foot mark into the snow. Dude, what are you doing? Like, what? I'm, like, preparing you for life. What do you think? I'm going to raise kids that can't, like, operate under stress? Are you kidding me? It's part of my responsibility as your father. But they loved it, right? They loved it. Right? They loved it. So anyway, Christmas upon us. The um so um so that in the news, and then Grant Newsham's gonna join us here in a few minutes. So um without further ado, the United States Marine Corps band makes this morning official for everybody. Good morning. <laughs>
this is dedicated to the spirit of Christmas out there. So in spite of all the craziness that happens in life, take a deep breath. Remember, it's uh, the Christmas season is upon us. And, uh, and to enjoy it, to have a good time with it. And so this is just a reminder, all right? It's Christmas. betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Time to check the weather, so we'll do that right now. Currently, it is cloudy and 44 in Quantico, down the coast at Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point. It is sunny and 53. 29 Palms warmed up a little bit, sunny and 64. At Camp Pendleton, it is partly sunny and 50. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy and 73 in Okinawa. It is dark cloudy 66. Manila, dark cloudy 81. Darwin, dark cloudy and 83. 
Currently at the home of All Marine Radio, it is foggy and 55. Looking for a high today of 73 degrees. Beautiful yesterday. 73 tomorrow, 66 on Thursday, 66 on Friday, 69 on Saturday. So, yeah, how about that? That works for me. And uh, that is a look at uh, weather. We'll check the headlines uh, in a very uh, rapid way. And then uh, and then Grant Newsham's going to come on. And uh, you want to know what we're going to talk to Grant about? I'll tell you what we're going to talk to Grant about, okay? Just uh, just because that's the kind of guy that I am, all right? Um, I'll give you the li- I'll give you the list that I sent Grant. Okay. Oh, uh, first of all, we're going to draw on his uh, abilities as an intelligence g- guy because that's what Grant was in the Marine Corps. He's an intelligence officer, and we're we're going to get his thoughts on the Ukraine. Talked about it yesterday. Did a little uh, orientation to the issues and what's going on there. Um, so we'll talk to Grant about that. We'll talk about the unrest in the Solomon Islands. Um, what's going on in the Solomon Islands? First of all, where are they? For those of you who remember World War II, right? Um, the battle uh, called the Battle of Guadalcanal. Yeah, that's the Solomon Islands. So they are northeast of Australia and are strategic in their location. So what's going on in the Solomon Islands? Might it have anything to do with China? Hmm. So you'll have to listen. Um, So we talk about that. We'll talk about the United States actions vis-a-vis the Ukraine. Does that have, is China watching that? So if we say, hey, you know, at the end of the day, the Ukraine really isn't in America, to, to defend the Ukraine to any extent, it's not in America's strategic interest. We'll just let Russia walk all over it. Um, does China sit there and take notes and say, you know, many people in the West are arguing that Taiwan is not in their strategic interest. So if they won't defend the Ukraine, would they defend Taiwan? So we'll get Grant's thoughts about that. Um, more and more U.S. elected officials are going to Taiwan. It's like Taiwan's like a cool thing now when it was like not even mentioned in the last 20 years. So we'll talk to Grant about that change. The Chinese Air Force has run a series of intercepts against, uh, I'm sorry, the Taiwanese Air Force has run um, a series of intercepts against Chinese aircraft in a buffer zone around Taiwan. So we'll talk about that. And uh, then... The president, when he met with President Xi, did not raise any difficult issues with President Xi. He did not press him on the Uyghurs. He did not press him on, on, you know, open, opening up Wuhan so that investigators could get to the bottom of where that virus came from. And then he leaves that, and he invites Taiwan to this democracy summit that he's hosting which is a slap in the face to China so we'll get Grant's thoughts about that and then we'll talk about the Olympics a little bit 
um, and get Grant's thoughts about what is, what does he think? Is that is that more perilous to China because you know we're we've already seen the incident with a ten, the Chinese tennis player that all of a sudden vanished after she accused one of the uh, leaders of the Chinese Olympic Committee, somebody very prominent in getting the Olympics to China, of raping her. Yeah. And so we'll talk to Grant about the perils that come with this tension. So, yeah, that coming up here in a couple of minutes. But first, we shall check the news. Top stories in Early Bird is weekly testing mandated for U.S. sailors who haven't been immunized against the coronavirus. Hmm. I thought they were going to be booted out. This is odd to me. Okay. The U.S. Navy is requiring unvaccinated sailors to test themselves. What? To test themselves each week for COVID-19 before they can report to work, including those who applied for medical or religious exemptions. Hmm. So this story is kind of weird, right? In no uncertain terms, people got told they were going to get kicked out. The Air Force has said, now, they won't be allowed to re-enlist. We talked about yesterday that, you know, up to 40% of the Army National Guard is not, from the numbers, last numbers I saw, is not vaccinated. Hmm. Army outlines consequences for soldiers who decline coronavirus vaccine without waiver application. So this is just like, yeah, I ain't getting it, and I'm not applying for a waiver. The Army will not promote or re-enlist troops who refuse the coronavirus vaccine and who haven't requested an exemption, according to a memo from the service's top civilian leader. The new rules apply to active duty reserve and National Guard troops, including those in at least one state where the governor doesn't require the vaccine. So, interesting, right? Again, very, very different than they were going to be kicked out. And that local commanders will have the power to characterize their discharge. So I have not seen, so anyway, so interesting story. So weekly testing mandated for U.S. sailors. Another headline, majority of vaccine exemption requests denied by the Marine Corps as mandate deadline passes. Here's another story related to that. The White House is discouraging firing unvaccinated federal workers before 2022. Hmm. Federal workers who have defied President Joe Biden's vaccine mandate likely won't be fired until 2022 at the earliest, with the White House encouraging education and counseling as a first step. (laughs) Oh, my God. So they have it. So again, remember they, you know, it's not like they drew a line in the sand. We're going to kick them out. Oh, yeah, that, not so much. Top story, Wall Street Journal, stocks and oil drop on Omicron concerns. So on Friday, they went down. The people that bet money, that thing came back yesterday and now back down again waiting for 
right? Waiting for politicians to do what they do. And again, you see more and more headlines. Omicron, unlikely to cause severe illness in vaccinated people, research says. So, again, we'll watch the politicians do what they do. That'll be depressing. Um, Top story in the New York Times. Omicron was already in Europe a week ago, officials say. (laughs) Symptoms, not so much. Oh, Well, then why are we losing our mind? Because it's what we do. It's what we do. Okay. Top story in Marine Corps Times is 5% of active duty Marines still completely unvaccinated as religious, as the deadline passes. This story was uh, written yesterday. An administrative message released by the Marine Corps in October said no, said in no uncertain terms that any Marine who fails to be vaccinated or receive an exemption by November 28th would be administratively separated from the Marine Corps. However, in November, Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro said that Marines who refuse to be vaccinated by the deadline would be given one or more chance to change their mind. of the active duty Marines have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, a Marine Corps press release said yesterday. So far, 2,444 Marines have applied for religious exemption to the vaccine, the press release said. Of those, 1,902 have been processed according to the Monday press release. None have been approved. Oh, for 1902. <laughs> nice. The Marine Corps has no records of any Marines receiving a religious exemption for any vaccine in the past 10 years. So what's going to happen? So there's approximately 8,000 Marines in this category. And then 79% of Marine reservists are fully or partially vaccinated. So you're talking about 21% of the reserves and, you know, what, 5% of the active force? Reservists have until December 28th. So, I don't know. I'm. I'm uh, this thing kind of changes all the time. Changes all the time. So that in the news. Top stories in early bird, and then you'll hear Grant Newsom. Yeah, it's almost like there was this big bluster almost like this big bluff. And then all of a sudden when, you know, the numbers are what they are and people were not going to move, then it was like, uh-oh, what are we going to do? Are we going to fire 8,000 Marines? 
Like, anybody have any idea? Have we identified the MOSs and the impact of any of this? Have we looked at that? No. No, we did not. We just thought we'd scare the shit out of everybody and they would do what we told them to do. Well, what happened? They told us to fuck off. Okay, can we get a breakdown of what, you know, jobs are in and shit like that? And then you start looking at that list and you're like, oh, yeah, this is not going to be good. See the, see this group, right? Those are all MOSs that are quote unquote under. It means we don't have enough and we're going to have less. That's a problem. That group's the same way. That group's the same way. That group. So, yeah. So, again, the Army has said we will not allow them to reenlist. Okay. The Navy said today they will have to be tested on a weekly basis. So that to me, as I get my secret decoder ring out, doesn't sound like anybody's getting their ass booted out. Just sound, It's just stupid. It sounds stupid and weak to me. And so what is the Marine Corps going to do? They're going to boot 8,000 guys out? Right. Want to see the, the Watusi that somebody does with this statement? It's going to be good. Top five stories in early bird. Threat of Russian invasion of the Ukraine tests the Biden administration. Yeah, you can see nobody from NATO has moved anything, right? We have strongly worded statements that are being issued by clowns like Anthony Blinken, right? Who takes this shit personally, just so everybody knows. I don't like that. In case, for those of you that listen, I don't like Blinken. He offended me, so... That might characterize most of my comments relative to that guy. So anyway, um, yeah. Does anybody believe that anybody's going to do anything to stop whatever Russia decides it's going to do? Where the fuck is Joe Biden? You know, where is Mr. Macron, right? Uh, I don't know. It's just... To me, stupid. Uh, Four-star review of 2019 Syria strike that killed dozens of civilians. So this has been in, in the news for a while. And this is an update to the story. And for the life of me, I, you know, uh, this is like the one in, uh, and I've done, but I, I don't know how many hundred of these I've done. Uh, when you see this, it is just, you just don't understand it. Okay. The same thing in the one in Kabul during the non-combatant evacuation of the Kabul International Airport. You can see, you're watching a video feed. You can see that there's people in proximity. You know they're going to kill them. What is what is the threat of this? Is it an imminent, you know, are, are people in imminent danger of it? And you just have to question who the fuck is in charge of that? What fool, you know, is sitting there making that decision? And I kind of went through, I should get my uh, air officer, I should get Rudy to come on and, and talk about the conversations we would have and how as a grown up, when you do this shit, you know, there's a whole series of conversations that you have with people because if you have to defend somebody, you have every right to do that. And if that means that civilians lose their lives, and that is regrettable, but that is your obligation is to 
you know, in, in, in a conflict is you have the, you have the inherent responsibility to protect your own. And sometimes innocent people will get killed. And you understand that. You do everything in your power short of that to make sure that doesn't happen. But if it has to happen, then you can't you cannot shy away from that. And so, you know, our experience in Afghanistan when you had Marine units pinned down and un so the buzzword was pinned down and unable to maneuver. Okay. Now, even inside of that, as a grown-up, there's, there's different variations of that. So when that was, in fact, the case, we're pinned down and unable to maneuver, okay? When that's the case, that is all the justification that I needed to look at my air officer and say, shoot it. Those are the rules of engagement. Okay, but as a grown-ass man... And somebody with a little bit of experience, right? You grab the, you grab your phone, you call the battalion, and say, "Hey, I need one piece of information. Are they securing a compound, right? And pinned in the compound and safe? Are they in a canal exposed that they're going to begin taking casualties? Because there's a huge difference. I'm in this walled compound. They're shooting at it. There's not shit going to get through there." And they're not shooting mortars at me, so they're not going to be able to drop anything inside of it. Okay, that means they're safe. They're, they're okay. And if, if, if there's civilians in the area, I've got some time to work this thing, right? And I don't have to kill anybody that doesn't need to be killed. It's called grown-up shit, right? If they come back and say, rounds are landing among us, we, we'll, we, sh- we'll, we are going to take casualties imminently boom end of discussion fire that's how that thing goes but it's it's grown-up shit right and when you look at these instances where you have drones overhead you're watching the video it's to me i don't know it's to me amateur hour and that's what it was in Kabul. And I'm I'm curious if there's ever an investigation published. I want to know who who did this. Who said shoot that? I'd really like to know. And listen to this. So th- this is what this story is about. Four star review of 2019 serious strike that killed dozens of civilians. The New York Times reported that a similar never-before-publicized strike on ISIS in Syria had targeted a group of women and children and killed 70 civilians. Now that strike is getting its own review. Army General Michael Garrett, head of Army Forces Command, has 90 days to review not only the strike itself, but how its results were investigated and briefed up the chain of command. General Garrett held the top job at Army Central Command. So under Central Command, there's RCENT, there's MARCENT, there's NAVCENT, there's AIRCENT, right? So for the different branches of the military. All right. So Garrett was Army RCENT, Army Central Command, right? Up until 10 days before the strike. <clears throat> 
quote, he will review the reports of the investigation already conducted into that incident and will conduct further inquiry into the facts and circumstances related to it. So again, how that many civilians get dead? Um, not exactly sure. Right? Not exactly sure. So, again, I'll be curious to read that. Um, Space Force takes the first step to establish components in command from Europe and Asia. What does that, what does that mean? So there's... Um, now components in Central Command. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall recently signed off on the creation of four new Space Force components with units now being set up to work within combatant commands in Europe, the Pacific, the Middle East, and South Korea, according to its top Space Force officer. So there will be, I just told you like our scent, this will be space scent. Space Pack, Space Your, right? Space K4. So Korea, Europe, Central Command, and the Pacific. So there you go. Big step for the Space Force. One small step for manned, one giant step for the Guardians. Uh, next story, 5% of active duty Marines still completely unvaccinated as the deadline passes. The world, the world awaits what the Marine Corps will do. Line up, boys. Time for you to go. Is that what they're going to do? Nobody else is doing that. Hmm. Latvia calls for, a permanent, for permanent U.S. troops to guard against Russian threat. <laughs> Latvia. Latvia, they're not stupid. This is from Reuters. Latvia needs a permanent U.S. military presence to deter Russia and wants to boost its defenses with U.S. Patriot missiles, Defense Minister Artis Pabrik said on Monday as NATO's chief visited Allied troops in the Baltic country. Oh, my God. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, we know what a hardliner Blinken is, due to arrive in Latvia's capital of Riga late on Monday before a meeting Tuesday with 29 NATO counterparts. The alliance is alarmed by Russian military buildup on the Ukraine border. Alarmed. When does alarmed carry action with it? I guess would be my question. And if it carries no action with it, or no threat of action, then what good is it? Here's what Mr. Pabrick says. We need additional international assistance. We would like to have a permanent United States military presence in our country. And sea and air defense means basically going down to such systems as Patriot surface air missiles. Deterrence is critical, said Canadian Lieutenant Colonel John Benson, commander of the NATO battle group in Latvia. So again, money talks, bullshit walks, right? So is NATO going to be more than bullshit relative to the Russia-Ukraine event? Were I a betting person, I would not bet on it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Hate to be doom and gloom today, but it is what it is. Uh, Russian Navy test fires a hypersonic missile in the White Sea. Whoa. 
Another, this is Associated Press story. The Taliban kill and abduct dozens of ex-officers, according to a rights group. Taliban fighters have summarily killed or forcibly disappeared more than 100 former police and intelligence officers since taking power in Afghanistan. Hmm, nobody expected that would happen, right? Oh, wrong. Belarus announces military drills with Russia near the Ukrainian border. Uh-oh. Not good. Not good. Iran insists on immediate lifting of sanctions as nuclear talks resume. Exactly. Hey, we're at the table. Lift the sanctions. So, all right. Those are operational headlines. Um, This is from Ohio Man. The email is entitled COVID Idiocy. Barry Weiss's latest podcast episode is an interview with John Hopkins, Dr. Marty McCary. He is calling bullshit on the COVID hysteria, informative and detailed discussion. But let's kick out all the unvaxxed military plebs while the federal union members get a reprieve. The stupidity that flows out of D.C. is getting harder to take. Yeah, you know, it's much better that you just don't know anything about it because then your life is not impacted. But, you know, again, what you have, even inside the, I mean, where's the Secretary of Defense with some form of, with some type of uniform policy announcement? So if you're a Marine, you're going to get 8,000, we're going to boot 8,000. Trust me, the Marine is not, Marine Corps is not going to boot 8,000 Marines. Let me, so what's going on in the halls of the Marine Corps? Some places, what do we do? How do we get out of it? We said we were booting them out. Now what do we say? Is this, is SecDef going to provide us some type of top cover? Right? What, I mean, come on, what do we do? We, we have less than 80% of our reserves vaccinated with 28, 29 days left before that. What are you going to do, boot 20% of the reserve, 20% of the reservists? Whoa. Well, I just read where the Army's not going to promote or allow to reenlist. So they're just going to phase out slowly, you know? And if you, and, and think about it. If you're the first in the first year of a six-year enlistment and you said no to the vaccine, you're going to work for five more years without the vaccine. Got to get tested every week. I mean, come on. So there you go. So, yeah, the stupidity all over it. All right. So with all that being said, that's a look at the news this morning. And uh, now, without further ado, the one and only Grant Newsom joins me from Taipei. Grant Newsom joins me. He is uh, our resident expert and intel expert here on the program. Um, Grant, how do you feel about those credentials? Huh. It's all compared to what, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so there's no competition. I suppose I am. But uh, there you go. There you go. And why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be the, the all marine radio expert? Come on. Who who else would play such a role? Answer: Nobody. So in that capacity. Now, but but um, your MOS in the Marine Corps was what? You're an intelligence guy, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm an, I'm an intelligence guy, but I've always found when you, you somebody says you're a, uh, what, um, an expert, 
or says they are an expert. Yeah, it um, boy, you should always say, well, how much of an expert? You know, it's like saying you'll hear these State Department guys who will rattle off the six languages they speak, and then you should always say, well, yeah, well, how well? And the answer is, in their case, is usually not very well. You know, they could ask you where you went to high school in six different languages, but that's about it. Uh, but, you know, I always feel like I'm missing something. So when someone says you're an expert on this or that, uh, you, you know, just maybe it's just me, but I've always got a little bit of uh, uh, doubt about it. You know, you may know a few more things than a lot of people by virtue of having paid attention to it more for a longer time and thought about it, uh, thought about it all. But you know what an expert you, know, you you just there's all sorts of stuff you don't know uh, so that's uh, a long-winded way of saying i've um, you know, may know a few things and have a few ideas but uh not that you know until somebody's paying me like thousand bucks an hour for my time uh, maybe well even then maybe that's even a sign you're really not an expert yeah I th i'm but, uh, thinking you're barking a, up the wrong tree with you know, that one an, i mean accomplish yeah an accomplished charlatan or smoke and mirrors man but uh, no, it's yeah. God, that's it's, uh, my reaction to being the expert. But. You know, I saw a headline the other day. Speaking of experts, Henry Kissinger doesn't think that China will invade Taiwan, and I was stunned by a couple things. One, who knew Henry Kissinger is still alive? Um, when was the last time Henry Kissinger PT'd? Do you think? Like about the same time as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but the oh. uh, it, no, maybe longer ago than that. Exactly. But the um, yeah, he, wow, yeah, he, he just, wow, uh, well, well done, well done. Didn't yeah, see, I hey, I didn't see that one go. Yeah, yeah, I don't see Henry Kissinger at a twenty-four-hour fitness anytime. But eighth grade, maybe, eighth grade, maybe. Oh, because he had probably. to. Yeah, yeah, no. I would say on a serious note, you know, um, if I had to give a serious answer to that, I would say, well, I, I, I believe that probably last time he was forced was when he was in high school. Um, probably May of whatever year Henry Kissinger graduated from high school. He's close to 100. So I would say May sometime in the 19, right around 1940, I would say, May 1940. That would be my well, guess was, as an expert. Yeah. Well, he was in the army. So what? Well, I mean, he, they didn't PT. Yeah. Oh, well, back then I think they did calisthenics. But, but isn't he from an... <laughs> if you remember the word, you asked him to do calisthenics. But if you remember back then, though, men didn't PT or exercise. Well, you were around ones who did. But, you know, ignore that. But yes. men, you know, after they, whatever, got out of high school, that was often the last like organized exercise they did other than say a pickup softball game or something like that. But it was, you know, I remember very well that it was just weirdos were people who went out and ran, you know, there might be a man in the, the neighborhood who what ran or did something or yeah, played my, tennis. My, my, gran my grandfather was that guy. He, he, uh, he rode, um, he uh, did marathons. He uh, he was one of those speed walker guys. Yeah, he was oh, yeah, like He was considered eccentric. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's how it, if you recall, that's what it was. You know, you 
people just didn't exercise you know, after an age and they all sort of turned into, you know, the took on a certain body type and physical appearance. Yeah, and, I'm and thinking, the ones, do, you, do you think Hall, Hall and Mad Smith PT'd? That, oh, I should have thought of him. But they, uh, <laughs> how, about, I have a feeling. <laughs> how about Douglas MacArthur? Douglas MacArthur, pretty vain guy, but I don't know that he, I think he just cut your, back on his calories on occasion. You just have the tailor keep taking out your trousers. <laughs> if, you, if you look closely, you can see um, some very good uh, haberdashery at work. But yeah, I don't understand if you, if you, when you look at the fashions of the day of those men who who never I never H M Smith like yeah I don't know when the last time he PT'd was but slowly but surely their their belt line creeps up right to their chest it's like so they put their belt around like their rib cage you're like what what in God's name who told you this was a good idea so I don't I don't really understand that but you look at pictures and that's what you see it's like how do you get your pants up that high for the love of God? So I don't know, just uh, just something things I think about uh, in the course of my life. Yeah, well, well, back to Henry Kissinger, his, um, <laughs> his uh, you know predictions on what China's going to do. You know, he's one of these guys that you could probably have a pretty nice life if you listen to what he said and did the exact opposite. Uh, it you know he's you have to keep in mind that. Kissinger has gotten very, very wealthy off of the Chinese Communist Party uh, as a consultant, as a friend of China, uh, this and that. And there's been any number of, you know, Western and other companies willing to pay him very, very well for his so-called expertise. Well, he was Secretary of State for Nixon, right? When uh, mm -hmm. when the door yeah. when the door opened. Mm -hmm. National Security Advisor, Secretary of State. I forget when he was what, but the um, but you know the thing to keep keep in mind is that when I say he has gotten very wealthy, and you never he will you never hear that talked about, uh, and he is will not talk about it either. But you know, here's one example: back around 2008 or nine, the the minerals company, Australian company Rio Tinto, and it's a big iron ore and every other sort of natural or mineral. Uh, they're a mining company. They were not, uh, well, they, um, how would you call it, were not as cooperative on the price of iron ore uh, as the Chinese wanted. So the Chinese arrested Rio Tinto's guy in China and accused him of corruption and this and that. So Rio Tinto hired Henry Kissinger to get his, to help him out with this problem. And his advice was, do what the Chinese want you to. And as a result... His, ex and, his expert advice. Well, that was it. And it is said, reliably, I believe, that Kissinger got $5 million for that advice. So Rio Tinto basically rolled over and, and their guy served like nine years in prison in China. So $5 million bucks for that uh, isn't very, you know, is pretty good day's work. Um, and keep in mind that Kissinger, who is supposedly a China expert, uh, he's probably never heard a word of Chinese spoken that he understood, except maybe the word for hello and thank you. Uh, and it, so he doesn't have the language thing going for him. Look, what, does he have a, say, a scholarly background in it? No, his PhD was in like the, the Treaty of Vienna or something like that. Uh, 
you know, so in his experience, his exposure to China is he goes, flies to China, gets in a limousine, goes to a five-star hotel, meets with the top dogs in some banquet hall or meeting room somewhere, and then gets in the limousine and goes back to, you know, back to America. And so how much of an expert are you really about China? If that's been your exposure to it, it would be as if you know, some Chinese-American expert, he flew to Dulles Airport, took a limousine down to, say, a hotel on Farragut Square somewhere, uh, met with some top guys in uh, at the White House or in a ballroom somewhere, had a dis discussions where they all talked about this and that, and then he went back to, and the guy didn't speak a word of English at all. And he goes back in the limousine to Dulles Airport, flies back to Beijing. How much of an expert is he? What, what is he an expert at? Uh, he's an expert at influence, right? And I know people that know people that know people. And, you know, in terms of expert advice, oh, that would be a different kettle of fish. Yeah. Right? So that, yeah. So, so that's, you have to, people should keep that in mind because he's often considered this great savant and, you know, really experienced guy with China. No, his experience is actually very limited. And it is in a, in a way that is the kind of experience that the Chinese are really good at manipulating. And then you throw in a financial angle to it to say certain things and keep the business flowing. And well, he's gonna, you know, he's gonna have some a perspective and, but is he really an expert on this that, you know, I'm not so sure, you know, I can name any number of guys that I would rather listen to when it comes to having some understanding of China. Uh, and how and about Chinese and what the Chinese might be up to, you know, it, it does help to have some exposure to normal Chinese people, uh, you know, beyond this this strat rarefied elite uh, that he belongs that he will has dealt with. Uh, so you know, it's like the old South Africa, where you have some guy who might know the very top people, but who never back in the white white ruled era, but he never went over to Soweto, where the Africans live. It kind of helps to know something about both. So that's, I've just say, got an opinion about this one. Wow. All right, let's talk about the Ukraine. Um, in your capacity as an Intel guy, and I know, I know you watch world events, um, <clears throat> I kind of, uh, I played a couple of different interviews um, yesterday explaining, you know, uh, the events in the Ukraine. I'd like your thoughts on it. And then, you know, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, said our our commitment to the Ukraine is ironclad. And um, that's ringing hollow to me. Um, you have yet to see any NATO units move. You have yet to see any, you know, anything but strongly worded messaging coming from uh coming from nato and europe and the bottom line is the ukraine is not in america's strategic interests according to most foreign service types in washington dc uh your thoughts on all that yeah it's you know it's been a what you call it not well handled for a long time uh it's, you know, looks as though, you know, Putin does have the resources in place. He's got, what, 100,000 troops within striking distance of Ukraine. Uh, 
Uh, and he's, they've been there a while. And you don't just keep 100,000 guys sitting out in the, you know, like out in the fields and uh, indefinitely, especially at this time of year. Uh, so, you know, that just the size of the, the presence, the stuff they've got there, you know, if they wanted to, they could move on, on Ukraine. Uh, some people have said, well, they don't have the, the so-called sustainment, you know, resources in place. They don't have artillery support uh, as you would need. And they haven't done things with the, say, the, the Red Sea Fleet or whatever they call the Black Sea Fleet. Black Sea, huh? uh, The Red Navy, whatever, yeah, the, the Russian Black Sea Fleet hasn't been sort of uh, mobilized the way you think it would be. You know, so there's people who throw it, can say those who point that out and say, well, maybe they're not, you know, as serious about it as they think. But at the same time, they've got plenty of resources there. Um, and if they wanted to go into Ukraine, they could. Uh, but they haven't done it. And so at a minimum, what Putin is doing is intimidating uh, the Europeans, uh, us to a lesser to a degree as well. But the Europeans, you know, keep in mind that he, you know, it isn't all about the Americans. You know, he has these sort of spineless Europeans who haven't shown themselves willing to do a whole lot to stand up to him. And particularly you have the Germans who have been who, like seemingly least interested of anyone in bolstering Ukraine and, and taking on the Russians. And as we've talked about before, the, the Germans have let the Russians build this pipeline uh, to supply them and Europe with uh, gas. And it, it, the obvious you know, you know, question is, well, couldn't uh, the Russians cut it off and thus hold Europe hostage, you know, especially when winter's coming, but really any time of year? And the answer is yes. And the Germans have, have been unnaturally willing to placate the Russians on this and to have this pipeline come into to operation. And the pipeline also bypasses Ukraine. So Ukraine used to play a role in moving gas into Europe. And but the Russians have now cut them out of it. And the Germans have gone along with it. And the Germans have even, I think, asked the Americans, please, please don't uh, apply sanctions on the Russians or other firms that are building this, that have done the pipeline. Uh, and that is really strange, you know. So it's the the Germans are pretty much taking the Russian side of this, and the there's a new government, of course, in in Germany that is probably less uh, sort of friendly to the Russians than Mrs. Merkel's government was. Uh, but the, so what you have, I think there's a is my guess, if I had to, is that. Putin has gotten his message across and has intimidated the, the daylights out of the Europeans again. And even, you'll note, as you said, the American response has been kind of limited on this. It's, uh, you know, it isn't a full-throated um, defense of Ukraine saying, if you do something, we're going to do something. So, you know, I think Putin has once again gotten his message across, but at the same time, within the part of the Ukraine, which his guys occupy and control i think they're gradually just redoing the, the border is being redone and it'll just slowly be absorbed into to russia uh, but for now my guess is that he's probably not going to move and i feel uh, pretty unsettled saying that uh, because you never quite know about this 
And, you know, so all the logic suggests he wouldn't. But then, you know, how often the logic said he wouldn't go into Ukraine, the, into Ukraine in the first place. Uh, and he did it right after the Sochi Olympics, those Winter Olympics, when Mr. Obama went and took selfies with everybody and, and, uh, and then had a, had a great time. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, the Russians took, I think it was Crimea first and then Ukraine. And uh, well, they took the Crimean part of Ukraine from the Ukrainians. And then they took a more attached part of Ukraine in the very east. Uh, from the Ukrainians and the Americans did nothing. You know, there was some talk of humanitarian assistance and this and that, but it was uh, wasn't until Mr. Trump came, the so-called Russian stooge, uh, that they actually sent like uh, some weapons that would kill that kill would kill Russians. Sent those to the Ukraine, uh, and so here we are today. But a hundred, think of it. You know, say America did an, an exercise and you put a hundred thousand troops. I would say on the border with Mexico, and you just sort of plop them down in, you know, somewhere along that that border, and had them sit. Would you just have them sit there indefinitely? Uh, it's uh, you, there must be a real temptation to at least use them a little. Uh, so there's a couple ways to this could go, and there's obviously enough concern that the, the C head of the CIA went to Russia to talk to the, the Russians uh, just a few weeks ago. And so the, and keep in mind that we only see certain things and, um, you know, the people, the, the intelligence people that, you know, have access to everything, they certainly saw enough to make and heard enough to make them concerned that the Russians were going to go have a bite of the Ukraine. And that is, I think that um, was significant that they did that, that the Americans took it that seriously. Uh, so, you know, here, my guess is, you know, I would, you know, I, if I was to make bets, I'd probably make the bigger bet that the Russians for now will be happy with just once again, uh, making it clear to the Europeans that the Europeans had better not get out of hand. And also to the Americans, it's again, he's rattled the Americans at least. Uh, uh, but it, so I'd make my biggest bet on that. And then I'd probably make a smaller bet on the Russians actually making a move uh, into, into Ukraine to uh, either more strong, sort of push the Ukrainians farther back, and then they can absorb the parts of Ukraine that they've already got. Um, uh, and then... But with those sorts of things, once it's never quite full. You know, once he does that, you know, it's what has that. Once uh, the Russians have that piece, well, do they want some more? Uh, so that would be sort of my take on it. Is probably not a, a shootout for now, uh, but you wouldn't uh, dismiss that. And perhaps events elsewhere in the world would shape uh, Putin's thinking on this. So something could happen somewhere else where it's got the Americans fully distracted. And at that point, I think that uh, the Russians would be um, very tempted uh, to go further into Ukraine. Yeah, I don't, you know, the more I, I think about this, I mean, that's, I mean, when you think of 100,000 troops, that is the size of, you know, three infantry divisions. That's almost the size of, you know, that is that is the size of three American infantry divisions. And... Um, you know that are that are sitting there, and 
I, you know, in all his, of his saber rattling, um, um, I don't, if I was him, I would think, what is this going to cost me? The Nord pipeline? Um, um, and it, when you listen to the two people I listened to yesterday, they talked about how losing the Ukraine is Putin's greatest failure. And it's happened twice. And and so, I don't know. I, I would, my own sense is that, you know, he, you know, believes that the United States is in Europe. I mean, they won't do anything. They didn't do anything last time. What has changed about that? And the answer is nothing. And so, I believe he's going to, he will move in the Ukraine in some way, shape, or form. Now, he may not go as far as people uh, think, but he will, you know, as you said, he will annex more of the Ukraine. And so, um, so that's my, that's my prediction as an expert. Well, yeah, you know, and, you know, I, I think you've, you've hit on something that is really important. You know, we, there's, there's a tendency, at least to, for a lot of, for us to think about things the way we would think about them. Uh, but, you know, how would a Russian think about it? And one like Putin, who does see Ukraine, which was part of Russia for a good long while, uh, having that sort of been sort of cut off or it was sort of taken away from uh, Russia from where it belongs. You know, maybe it'd be, you know, like us in, say, Arizona or something like that. Say Arizona was, became, in, you know, became independent. And, you know, we're thinking, well, this is, part of America, but to, to uh, or should be. So a guy like Putin, you know, they do look at, at Ukraine as something that is really part of Russia. And if you go way, way back, they're sort of descended from the, frame, the same uh, sort of people a thousand years ago, whenever it was, when the, the Rus, uh, they, there's, if there's a connection to it that is not, uh, that is pretty deep and visceral. Um, in fact, it's a salient connection. No, I couldn't resist that. But it's um, <laughs> uh, it they you know, to them, you know, the, the, they would see Ukraine as something that rightfully belongs to Russia, and it only you know was taken away or was only allowed to leave or to sort of become independent uh, by some rascals who let this happen at a time when Russia was weak and after the Cold War, and and it's you know it'd be time to reset things. And so that is something, you know, when you point that out, that, you know, that's why I would put, you know, a, another bet on the fact that I would also put some money on the possibility that he does something. Uh, and, you know, they, because the, like the you, you, Russian-Ukrainian language, there's just these similarities that are so strong. And they, as, as mentioned, Ukraine was part of Russia for a long time, like a few centuries. And... That uh, isn't something you just that the the side that loses it or that thinks that the Ukraine belonged to it, uh, they're not just going to say, oh well, that happened, nothing to be done. <laughs> you know, they're you know you saw what they did. They took Crimea. Right. Uh, so legally, it was a little different because it was sort of a gift to Ukraine from Khrushchev, as I re understand it. But the part of Ukraine they took, that the other part they took, that was one that they thought belongs to them and they've just kind of taken it back and so they 
the Russian, unfortunately, we do have a lot of people who understand the Russian mindset very well. So if the U.S. government can't be, you know, they ought to be pretty well informed about what's coming or isn't coming. And, you know, they, but you're, you're right to be worried. And I think that um, everybody is, but say my bet, more likely they don't do anything, but at the same time, it's a real possibility that they do. So that's kind of having your cake and eating it too. Yeah, that's, I, that's I've at least given you're a betting, you're betting both you're you're betting both sides of the issue. Yeah, what so it, let me ask you this is do you th so now let's draw a parallel between Taiwan and China. Is Taiwan in America's strategic interest because that's the argument. Obama said Americans are not willing to die for the Ukraine. It is not in our national interest. Um and so I think he said that once he got out of office. Um, um, what about Taiwan? Is Taiwan in America's strategic interest? Well, you hear people who say it isn't. You're hearing that more often these days. It's you know for all the talk we that there is of you know U.S. supporting Taiwan more than ever, and you see U.S. congressmen traveling to Taiwan that you're starting to hear within that chattering class or the, the common foreign policy class that, well, it's Taiwan isn't worth it. And you've heard that you've heard that a long time, but once again, you're hearing it more, even more now for some reason uh, that the, the possibility of a real, of having to actually fight uh, comes along that people are, uh, that you're hearing some more of the so-called experts, you know, who have their doubts about whether Taiwan is worth it. And, you know, just with Ukraine, same thing. It's, oh, it's, and my guess is most people don't think Ukraine is worth it, uh, which, you know, I think they'd probably pay for that if, um, yeah, but there's also, a, with all of this, there's sort of the, they're not as imaginative as they could be in providing the necessary support to Ukraine or Taiwan that would make it less likely that you have to actually get involved in a fight with them. Um, but with Taiwan, you say so you're you're hearing that you know at least I notice it in, in more places than uh, than than I have. Excuse me for the last uh, few years, and the um, so it it's almost as if you know there's it's at least creating a, the doubts or at least creating a reticence or an unwillingness to do what is needed to support Taiwan. So it can be too tough a nut to crack for the Chinese or just not worth it because of the other damage and punishment they would suffer to their interests elsewhere in the world. Uh, that by not doing the right things now, you run the risk of putting yourself in a position where the other side has got such an advantage that you can't move at a reasonable cost. And thus it almost becomes irrelevant whether or not you think Taiwan is or is, isn't within or isn't worth defending or within our defense perimeter, because there's nothing you can do, even if you think it is. Uh, if, you, if you don't do enough now, you'll re find a point where you say you just cannot uh, take on the what the Chinese have in place uh, should they decide to go after Taiwan. And China's problem with Taiwan is they can't, they can't steal the playbook from the Russians with the little green men and the cross-border incursions with people that have no uh, 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 national markings on their uniforms, they, have, they wear no rank insignia, 
these people are disavowed by the government, and um, China has to cross a large body of water uh, in order to get to Taiwan, so they can't use the the gray zone operations uh, that that the Russians used uh, to 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 you know to just walk right into the deny the whole thing and then walk right into the Crimea, um, and so uh, but I. I I would imagine we're either Chinese and you're watching Western resolve, the resolve of the free nations of the world. I would say, hey, look, we should not be afraid of their response because they, many of them do not consider Taiwan worth shedding blood for. And uh, so they will give us the same response should we move militarily uh, that they gave, that they have given the Ukraine. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and they're also looking, keep in mind that the Taiwanese also see what's going on with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And they've got a, a pretty finely tuned sense of just how much the West and the free nations are not willing to defend them. And they've got to be very concerned with what they <clears throat> they see. And there is even a potentially tying together of the two things that if something happens in Ukraine, you may see more things happen towards Taiwan and vice versa. Uh, so it's also what the Taiwanese think about it all. But it's, um, you know, with, with the Chinese, it's, you know, the, it is a, it's a different, the, the problem is different because of that 90 mile wide Taiwan Strait. And you just can't, you know, you can't move armored units across and pretend that they're just uh, some independent guys you've never seen before, like the, the Russians did with Ukraine. Uh, but the so the Chinese go about their subversion and their efforts to control in a different way, as we've talked about before, with political subversion, you know, buying off religious groups and um, most of Taiwan's academia. Uh, that there, there's other ways that you can sort of psychologically influence and wear down your opponent as they're doing in Taiwan, but they can't do it. They don't have it's not quite as easy as it is. Uh, for the Russians in Ukraine, and particularly in that part of Ukraine, which adjoins Russia, and also has a sort of a very large Russian-speaking population that right. actually thinks the Soviet era was a pretty good era. Uh, so it's uh, it just yeah, it's um, which is a tribute to the consumption of vodka. Right. Yeah, probably that. yeah, one's if body weight. To, if, if that's what you yeah. can, if that's what you concluded. That is a straight-up um, conclusion reached with much, much alcohol in your system. The um, Now, I want to ask you, uh, as we kind of turn towards China, um, President Biden um, pushed away from calling President Xi his old friend. In fact, denied, <laughs> denied that. The next time he des- denies it in public, it'll be the third time, and, a, and there should be a cock crowing someplace. Um, but he was asked, you know, are you old friends? And he said, no, no, we're not old friends. And then Xi greets him as his old, as his old <laughs> friend, which was, I mean, the only thing missing was the rim shot. Biden is docile. Biden is as docile with Xi as Trump was docile with Putin, Okay doesn't raise any of the contentious effort uh, subjects, you know, about would you allow an investigation of the origin of COVID in your country? He doesn't press him on any of that. Then he leaves and he's decided to convene a leader summit for democracy. And 
What does he do? He invites Taiwan to that, which is a straight-up slap in the face to the Chinese. Um, what do you make of the kabuki dance that is going on here? It, um, hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's, you know, with the, the Biden administration, they have done you know, some things that are, you know, I think, pretty good towards China uh, in terms of, you know, not rolling over. So they'll do something, say, like, um, you know, allow U.S. officials and congressmen to visit Taiwan, for example, which is significant. Which seems uh, to be all the cool kids are going to Taiwan now. It seems to be like a cool thing to do now. Kind of. You know, there's people who, within Congress, you know, you do find a a sort of a pretty widespread support for Taiwan to a certain extent. Right. And so, you know, that's just one example. So you have letting these visits to take place, knowing that the Chinese are going to to go berserk. Uh, And then... And then they don't won't challenge China on the the virus origins, uh, which every which is everyone knows they came from that lab in Wuhan, uh, but so they don't do that. And then you'll have them invite Taiwan to this democracy summit, which really does bother uh, the Chinese, you know, considerably. So we're sort of a back and forth, and you know, and going back to what you said earlier, though that. You know, Biden's background with the Chinese and his family backgrounds with them is such that you, you couldn't, if you say you applied for a serious government job and needed a security clearance, if you had that in your background, you couldn't get a security clearance. And, and that's just, you know, something that deserves a lot more attention than has gotten. Uh, and so you, know, you can make all this, one can speculate on that, but he's really got a a dubious background with the Chinese, both in terms of sort of financial dealings with them, but also getting it so wrong with the Chinese for so long. Uh, but then with all the charges against Mr. Trump and the Russians, well, where's the evidence for that? You know, and he did send those Javelin missiles to the Ukrainians that'll kill Russians. Uh, but in, when these meet, leaders meet each other, they do tend to sort of put on a good face yeah, and I think it's what they have to do uh, a lot of the time. Uh, it's actually pretty rare that they actually um, talk tough. Uh, but Biden does, he, you know, at that meeting he just had with Xi, did just seem to read his read his statement and didn't really say anything that would cause the Chinese to get upset. Uh, so... I mean, but then he then he leaves and slaps him across the face, which uh-huh. is now. Could you explain to us? Um, could you explain to us the one China policy, and then um, and so this is the official policy of the United States, and then could you then then and I know these are big concepts, but could you explain that and then roll that into this concept of strategic ambiguity. Oh boy. Well, well, the one China policy, the, the way I look at it is that the U.S. position is that the Chinese communists think that Taiwan is part of Ch- communist China and that Taiwan thinks that it, you know, that it is, um, what do you call it? It is, well, it complicates it a little bit, but Taiwan thinks that, or it used to, that China belonged to Taiwan. So the American position is that it recognizes that there is a dispute as to who Taiwan belongs to. 
but it doesn't take a position on that. But it ins America insists that the any sort of resolution of this uh, this dispute has to be done peacefully. And if it is not done peacefully, that is it will be of such concern to the Americans that the Americans just might get involved and fight to defend Taiwan. So does that kind of make sense? We recognize there's a dispute. We're not taking sides. Now, is that the one China? Is that the one China approach? Mm -hmm. That's so so we, recognize, we recognize that there's a dispute. We're not going to take a side. And we're very concerned about the outcome? Pretty much. But there's, we've actually, if you read everything carefully, uh, that the Americans have, it's that that line that America, that if this is not, this has to be decided peacefully. If it is not, that is a matter of what great concern. Grave, grave concern, right? But it actually has a meaning in this case, and oh. that it is that we just might fight, and that's where you get to the strategic ambiguity of this. But the Americans are not when America says it agrees to that it has a one-China policy. That that does not mean that it is China, the communist China's idea of a one China policy. America has its own one China policy. Um, it is not accepting or the interpretation that anyone else has of it, but it's America's. And that is ultimately that we think there is a, we recognize that there's a dispute, but uh, this had better be decided peacefully. If it isn't, it's um, something we just might fight over. And I think that's not a too bad a distillation of it down to, uh, to where it where it need, where it's helpful to uh, understand it, and the Chinese always say, "Well, you agree, you have a, you agreed, you you have a one China policy, and it's our one China policy," and they're just lying when they say that. But you see, it's not challenged most of the time when it's said, uh... and, and so people hear, "Oh yes, America has a one China policy." So it, and you you think, well, it's the same thing that the China Chinese talk about as the one China policy. And that there is this one China and Taiwan is part of it. Um, no, that's not how we see it. We have our own one China policy. So it should always be referred to as our one China policy. And once in a while, you'll hear officials actually say that. And there's a, a nuance to it that, that always gets lost. Uh, but it needs to be stated much more clearly and more often than it, than it is. You know, I was... Uh... I got elected to public office years ago. And do you know what happens when somebody says something, characterizes your position, and you don't, you don't rebut that? You know, what, you know what happens? It's impossible to ever. Exactly. It is, that, becomes, that becomes the public record. Oh, you mean, you mean that about that? And if you allow that to stand, that, that's why no matter how small the point is, if you're involved in it and it's in public, you, you have to go on the record and you have to state that which you believe. Otherwise, the other side controls that narrative. And that's why that's very dangerous. That's very dangerous. The, yeah, um, oh, go ahead. Um, next subject. Solomon Island protest and the Australians and somebody else just sent somebody, some uh, police there. Uh, what's going on in the Solomon Islands? Can you explain that? 
Um, well, first of all, it's the the Solomon Islands are you know if, if you don't live and breathe the stuff and you know and also helps to get out a map and I even have to do it. Uh, you know they're down they're down to the east of New Guinea and it's where the Battle of Guadalcanal was fought. It's where Iron Bottom Sound was. All of these places with just fierce fighting in World War II. Uh, a lot of it involving the Marines and the Navy, of course, yeah. and the Army, too, a little bit. Well, Actually, again, I mean, historic, heroic battles of early Second World War and the Battle of Guadalcanal, the 1st Marine Division, um, and uh, the Navy gets its ass kicked uh, out there and then comes back and, uh, and begins to bloody the Japanese. And uh, epic, epic events in uh, 1942, uh, around the Solomon Islands. And so, um, but there's problems yeah. there now. Yeah, there are. And keep in mind that the Japanese went down to the Solomon Islands, not just for fun, but because it's strategic terrain. If you occupy those islands, if you look at the map, you can see you can cut off Australia from the north, cut them off from the U.S. And you can also, it's a good launching pad for dominating and eventually controlling the rest of that sort of south and southwest Pacific. So it's just as important strategically today as it was in 1942 uh, when we were fighting over it. And the Chinese, of course, understand this. And the Chinese have not invaded the place, but they have launched a sort of a political assault, an economic assault uh, on the region. And the Solomon Islands have been you know, in the crosshairs as well. So that's just sort of setting the stage. And the Solomon Islands... They in 2019 they switched their diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China. So they had been, I think it was 36 years, had recognized Taiwan as their uh, the country that, well, their one China policy recognized Taiwan. Uh, and then they changed it. And the there was a lot of money changed hands uh, when that. Uh, the shift was made, and there's all sorts of rumors that the prime minister at the time, who was still the prime minister, you know, got wealthy off of this. His friends did as well, took Chinese money. And then as soon as the, the change happened, you had this flood of so-called Chinese investment coming into the Solomon Islands. And when this investment comes, you get thousands of Chinese workers with it. You get the uh, corruption. You get drugs. It changes the political and social sort of balance and structure in the place with all this Chinese money and presence uh, f sloshing around. And the, you get the, the usual, the, as I say, organized Chinese organized crime always comes with it. So you get even worse, say, drug problems than you, than you had. And it's just it's bad for everybody except for the people who are getting rich off it. And they always have their you know, locals who are, are getting wealthy and are doing well from all this, the, the Chinese uh, onslaught, basically. But most people don't. And you find that within the Solomon sort of the society that a lot of people are very unhappy and particularly, uh, say, uh, the sort of the, the leaders of the community and the religious organizations particularly unhappy about it, the churches. Uh, and so there's a lot of discontent. So these people, they um, went and, give you the, the simple version, is they went and protested uh, against, 
the, the prime minister and his pro-China policy, about a thousand people went and protested at uh, the parliament uh, in Honiara, which is right where Henderson Field is, if that gives you some context. Um, it and d- the po- it, it does it does for me. I know. Oh, <laughs> right? I've been looking at that map since I was a little kid. Gua- yeah. and Guadalcanal so Diary is one of the first uh-huh. books I ever read about World War II. Richard Tregascus, yeah. yeah. And they um so the but there's there's a protest outside the parliament calling for the prime minister to step down. And or and it was really what sparked it was his pro China, pro communist China policies. And the police in, fired tear gas on this, and it led to riot, it led to some. So the you know, the the government's response to this was to get rough. So they fired tear gas, tried to crack down, and this led to some rioting uh, in the in Honiara, and uh, some buildings in Chinatown got burned down. There was a a little there was like a thatch covered smoke hut, you know, where you where you know people who smoke cigarettes would go out and smoke cigarettes next to the parliament building the the thatch caught on fire and it could be that the some of the one of the cops who fired his tear gas canister hit the thatch um they were apparently firing from the that place uh that that started the fire so but you regardless you you have the the government response was to crack down this led to rioting and the what it, the next thing you know, you have the Australians who've always considered the Solomons their turf. Uh, they sent in a, a very some a number of police and few some military, and a few diplomats to stabilize the situation, and they sent it in at the request of the prime minister, of the pro-China guy, uh, the guy who's in China's pocket, and so here you have Australia, uh, that. Um, is in a very difficult fight with the Chinese on because of over economic sanctions, political pressure from the Chinese, the Chinese threatening to attack China. You have them going in to prop up a pro-China prime minister uh, and against the people who want to have the prime minister step down and to have... Um, Chinese influence eliminated, if not greatly reduced, and even some would, I would say, probably return recognition to Taiwan. So that you can see the the problem here, that the Australians are effectively backing up China's guy. And that is maybe not the best thought out uh, move that's happened in a while. And they've also, the Australians have brought in some troops from, a a small number of, I think, troops from New Guinea. And those are not at all popular in uh, in the Solomon Islands, um, the uh, the only people that really are well liked or as in this role in the Solomons are the people from Fiji, from what I'm told. But this overlay, there's an overlay on this. It's um, that you it complicates things, and that there's a one of the provinces in uh, Solomon Islands is called Malaita, and it's a it's off, it's a big, huge, big, long island off to the east of Guadalcanal. And people from Malaita have really been outspoken in their opposition to the recognition of uh, the Chinese uh, of China and the presence of these this Chinese uh, influence, the the, the economic um, investment and and the subversion and corruption that's taken place as a result. So that province has just been overwhelmingly, 
opposed to the prime minister and what he's tried to do. So that, um, and there's also, but even, there's also, so the people from Malaita, actually they, like as often happens in these societies, they've never had the best relations with everyone in, uh, some people on other islands. Uh, but the, so they're, they're at the forefront of this uh, opposition to the, the Chinese presence in the Solomons. The, the point of that is that it all gets pretty complicated. And the prime minister had really been playing rough and tried to subvert, uh, uh, how do you call it, subvert the, um, uh, the opposition on Malaita. And, you know, almost, and I think some arguably say, tried to withheld, tried to withhold medical care from the premier, the head of that province, and uh, wasn't going to let him get out of the country to get it because they, unless he would kowtow, would knuckle, uh, would agree to uh, go along with the government. The guy's a very principled guy, refused to do it, uh, did eventually get out, uh, no help from the Australians or countries that should have helped him, but he was able to get out to Taiwan and basically save his life, and now he's back. But he's very popular. Uh, and so you have uh, this internal dispute uh, with, I would say, the majority are sort of a, against China on this, and it's a beleaguered sort of prime minister uh, is trying to keep this uh, sort of Chinese connection going. But the Australians have stepped in on his behalf. And what they're saying is, well, we just want the political process to stabilize things, let the political process work. And, but that only works when both sides to this political process are playing fair. And the current prime minister is not. You know, he's used you know money and government funds and Chinese funds to uh, really to go after his opposition, and that so it's not a fair a level playing ground at all. So the Australians are you know they if they had listened to other Australians who really knew what was going on in the country, they wouldn't have been put into this position. Uh, to have to go in and be seen as supporting the the Chinese guy, so it's uh, because they didn't do things right beforehand. I think they're in this uh, really difficult, and I would say embarrassing position uh, for them. You know how this is going to play out. I don't know, uh, but it uh, they unfortunately it's also said that the prime minister was either going to step down as a result of the protests, or was um, the in the parliament that his support was eroding and he would have been forced to step down by losing so much support. And he's almost at that point. And then the Australians announced they were coming in on his behalf. And you can see how that changes the, the dynamic. Uh, so the lesson here, well, one, we don't know how this is going to play out too. It, it just shows one, just how uh, aggressive and widespread Chinese influence in the whole region is, but it also shows that there's an awful lot of resentment to that Chinese influence. Um, and, uh, and, but you're also seeing how that resentment, it, it isn't getting the support or the, that it needs from, say, the Australians, the Americans, etc., the free, the free nations. You know, they should be playing this political warfare game just like the Chinese do, but if we're not playing it, and the only people who are, are the Chinese, well, they have the advantage. So those are a couple of the, the things to uh, take away from that. And one, one point is that one imagines the U.S. Embassy in the Solomon Islands is on top of all of this. But uh, you would think, but there is no U.S. Embassy in the Solomon Islands. Uh, 
you know, if you, you know, one hardly knows what to say, uh, that there is no U.S. embassy. And, we, you know, how we have them in all sorts of places. I and mean, we've got an embassy in Lesotho, for goodness sakes. Now, you can get out your uh, dictionaries and start finding out where Lesotho is. But this is strategic terrain. It, it is now more than it has ever been. And the Americans don't have a diplomatic presence. The idea was, well, they'll just leave it up to the Australians. Well, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and there's no substitute for being there. And the Americans are actually very popular in the Solomon Islands and throughout the region. And to not be there is it's just hard to imagine. Uh, and one also asks, well, what's the Indo-PACOM presence? Uh, what's the U.S. military presence in the area? Uh, none. Uh, we may go through there once in a while, but we don't have any permanent presence or so. Uh, we know we've we've got some problems in terms of what we're paying attention to or not paying attention to, and it would take so little to just pay attention to them. And you know, a couple of years ago, the, actually the sort of the, the anti-Chinese communists or the pro-American Solomon Islanders, some of them, they actually apparently asked the Americans if they wanted to you know, have a base there. You know, it's been talked about, and it's also equally rumored that the Chinese have a uh, a base in mind for the Solomons. Uh, they did actually lease a Chinese company. In fact, uh, a couple of years ago, leased the entire island of Tulagi, which you remember that name from the Guadalcanal battle. They leased the yeah. whole thing and were going to do things there. And the Chinese did have a, a they, like everywhere, they've always got the, the base in mind. It may take a little while, but they'd really gotten themselves sort of dug in. And there was so much local opposition to this that even the pro-China uh, government and prime minister had to back off and uh, we canceled the, the, the contract. Uh, but it's a, it's a new battlefield, and just like the, the entire region down there. Though, though the war is being fought economically, politically, and psychologically for now, and we're not even there. And that pretty much goes throughout the region. Um, you know, if you were to take like, you know, say the officers who plan the Marine Corps ball at PACOM every year, the Navy ball, you know, who just made their sole job is to make PowerPoint slides for the 4 p.m. brief. Just take some of them, you know, and, you know, apply them to the region. But that's you know, a little simplistic. But the point is, if it's important that you're going to find the resources to pay it proper attention, that's both military and civilian. Uh, and we, you know, it's an area that it's um, has not gotten our attention, and certainly deserves it uh, immediately. That's depressing. That you know, when when you listen to the government, doesn't seem to be able to get its diplomatic and military um, act together, uh, even though we've uh, been saying China, China, China for years now, and that we don't seem to have you know the right the right pieces on the chessboard so that we can exert influence um, and stop playing whack-a-mole out in the Pacific, that we have a concerted strong front, both diplomatically and militarily, and we're engaging with partners to make, uh, to make, um, to make our presence in the Pacific strong and, uh, and, uh, and incentivizing it in the, in the appropriate way. So, once again, a bit dismaying. Talk to me about um, 
And this idea that more elected officials are going to Taiwan, Grant, I mean, it seems, uh, again, you and I have talked about this, that the, the comeback that Taiwan has made has been nothing short of, you know, astounding. Um, if you watched it, I mean, the Taiwanese were, they were not the kid that was going to get invited to the party. They were another kid <laughs> that was not going to be invited. And so it's been, it's been astounding to see um, how they have, are now, you know, in this position that uh, people, um, people come and uh, politicians, you know, put China or t- put Taiwan on their, you know, places to go list. It's, it's, very, uh, it's very amazing to me. Um, what do you make of that? Uh, it is a, it's, it's important. And once again, as we talked about earlier, it's one of these things the Biden administration is doing or is letting happen uh, that is, is really good. You know, so they'll do something that's really not good and then they'll do something good. So it's how that averages out. I'm not sure, but it is a big change, as you've mentioned. Uh, and the Chinese don't like it. You know, they just hate it. You know, these people, these are U.S. congressmen. They fly in on, uh, I think it's U.S. Air Force or Navy aircraft uh, and, you know, have their meetings with the, the president of Taiwan. And um, you're giving Taiwan this treatment that you would give a, a normal nation, that you would give normal people. And it's the Taiwanese greatly appreciate it and sort of bolsters them Uh and it's at the same time, it's done with the understanding China is not going to like it and they're going to respond in some way. But the Americans are still going ahead and doing it. The Taiwanese are letting them or go, you know, glad to have the, the attention, although they do understand uh, that there will, the Chinese will ratchet up the, the pressure on them. Uh, but as you pointed out, this would not have happened 10 years ago. Uh, really wasn't until the Trump administration that you started to see this sort of overt uh, support for Taiwan, but these they see these actions that don't seem like much and wouldn't be much in anywhere else on the world, but here with Taiwan they have an outsized influence. And and the thinking that that it always struck me, it's how it seemed to me for until the Trump era, uh, and this was with both administrations uh, and the thinking of both the political class, the academic class, the the chattering class. That was it was that. Taiwan is a dispensable irritant in the larger, much more important U.S.-PRC relationship. Thus, we will give Taiwan the support that decency requires, but it'll be just enough to to let it stay alive. Um, But we won't give it so much that it can actually thrive and, uh, you know, and sort of develop the way that a a free nation that has become a democracy would. So they're kind of keeping it like uh, two a hand, at least one hand on Taiwan's throat, but just letting it breathe, but not say breathe too much, because uh, you don't want to get the Chinese angry. And that has been the uh, to me that struck me as kind of the 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 basic mindset was oh we wish Taiwan would go away, but we can't you know we can't strangle it because everyone knows that you know Henry Kissinger's Realpolitik says that. The uh, relationship with China is the most important one America has, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, now you're seeing that the hand on the throat is kind of let, letting up a bit. And it has been for 
a while now. And this, these visits by the congressman are, are one sign of that. Inviting Taiwan to the, uh, to the democracy summit is another. Uh, and at the same, you know, and then, and then at the, the at the same time, there'll be things that are perhaps uh, less helpful for the administration to do uh, when it comes to China. Um, do you think? So, Grant, do you think that the growing militarization of China's activities, um, you know, the growing military threats towards Taiwan, the growing military threats towards the United States, um, you know, the, te the hypersonic test, uh, the revelation of the targets out in the desert. Uh, do you think all that is, I don't want to use the word galvanize, uh, so I would use the word short of um, uh, in very, uh, beginning to solidify um, American, I don't want to use the word resolve, but at least, um, so the embryonic words of resolve and, and galvanize, beginning to harden American sentiment towards China, and it's manifested itself in this, in this renewed interest um, uh, with China, I mean with Taiwan. Oh, it's definitely firming up. You know, it's uh, yeah, galvanize will work if you compare it to what things were. Um, that it, it definitely has. You know, the the Chinese threat and and their capabilities, like combined with their capabilities, which is the threat, uh, and what they say has scared enough people and woken them up to uh, change things, so that you are seeing more support for Taiwan than than you ever have, and these you see people getting out and about. Uh, to show their support. And particularly in Congress, you you notice this on both sides of the aisle, although nobody is talking about cracking down on Wall Street and U.S. business that is funding the Chinese war machine. Uh, but at the same time, you are seeing a more just latent and basic support for Taiwan, uh, both Republican and Democrat. And you look at the people who do visit, and it's a mix. And it's often people that you, know, you, you don't hear much about you know, who have somehow gotten an interest in Taiwan and think that it's important to uh, provide support for Taiwan. But as you said, though, it, the Chinese have brought this on themselves. You know, if they had, uh, they just couldn't help themselves. And if they had just kept going with their so-called charm offensive of the 2000s and 2010s, where they were just smiling and, you know, the, all the diplomats everywhere were being overly friendly and you know, they weren't trying to talk, they weren't throwing around the threats. There wasn't the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, which is, you know, really, let's just see how much we can scare people. Um, but if they had played that role with the, the smiling faces, they would have lulled everyone, uh, except maybe, you know, a few of us, uh, really into this sort of submission. And we would have said, oh, China's no threat. You know, they... Uh, and they and China would have built itself up into a much even they'd have kept building up and we, our defenses would have been reduced and relaxed. And that's just us and every, everywhere else in the world, they would have been dismantled. But China couldn't help themselves. So they've overreached and now they have woken up people to the threat. And you are seeing more of a sort of a resistance uh, to the, the Chinese with the and an idea that this resistance may have to involve fighting. And that really is, a, as you said, is a response to uh, the threat, the China threat that China highlighted uh, 
quite helpfully uh, so that people who would be inclined to ignore it couldn't ignore it anymore. Will the Olympics be a good thing or a bad thing for the Chinese? I mean, because um, of late, uh, last couple weeks, uh, there's a, a tennis player. Uh, I, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she accused a very, very prominent member of the Chinese Olympic Committee, uh, somebody who was very instrumental in getting the, the Olympics uh, to China, of, uh, of, of raping her. And then all of a sudden she vanished. And you had very prominent members of the tennis world um, and, and the Olympics asking, where is she? And uh, then she made this very, very orchestrated appearance and said, no, I'm fine, which nobody essentially believed. Um, so um, does this expose more of, you know, in the news today, Ennis Cantor just became an American citizen. Um, he has been the most prominent athlete critic of the Chinese talking about, you know, them enslaving people and all different things that the Chinese government does. Um, and so I, I'm curious your thoughts on the Olympics uh, and all the visibility uh, comes at a time when China has uh, a foot in, in two different worlds. And so it'll be very interesting to see which world um, uh, is ascended in, in, the, uh, in the coverage of China. Yeah, you know, with the Olympics, I think the, they're not going to be the success China hoped they would be. But at the same time, they're going to be held and they'll uh, kind of look normal, normal enough. And so they'll get some credit, some advantage from that. But what it, perhaps it reminds, it's the, it reminds one of the 1936 Olympics when held in Berlin, when everybody knew what was coming with the Nazis. They knew what the nature of that German regime was. They knew what was going on uh, in terms of a concentration camps already, the, the murder of Jews and others, uh, that they knew that and everyone knew it. And there, yet the Olympics were held. And, you know, it, so and it not without some controversy. And it looked like, you know, it kind of depends on how you look at it. Some people might say, well, the German, the Nazis got the, the full advantage of having the Olympics and showcase their uh, their government, their system. And they didn't really suffer from it. But uh, you know, these you don't often see the full how these things play out for a few years after. And I think with this year's and unfortunately in World War II's case, it was or Germans that case of the Berlin Olympics, you know, three plus years later, you have the beginning of World War II to get uh, rid of that system. Whereas I say, if they had uh, maybe a stronger approach by the free nations before that. And not just in boycotting the Olympics completely, but in doing other things to uh, rein in uh, sort of Nazi aggression. You could have avoided World War II and everything that came from that, the Holocaust, the Cold War, etc., etc. So one thing tends to lead to another. So with the Beijing Olympics, uh, you have something similar where there is a lot of controversy. There is calls for a full boycott of this. That's not going to happen, unfortunately. Now, the International Olympic Committee, just a word on them, is it's got to be <laughs> probably more corrupt than an organized crime group, certainly than a Yakuza, Japanese Yakuza, in terms of ethics and principles. Um, you know, and so I wouldn't expect them to, they're not going to get in on any sort of boycott. But the free nations who should know better 
and know what is going on in China, you'll see that they're not going to not send their athletes to, to Beijing or to China. And they're once again trying to have it both ways. You know, some talk of a so-called diplomatic boycott, which I means that I guess yeah. means that what is U.S. That? officials U.S. officials don't go to watch. Um, well, the Chinese say, okay, we don't care. Um, we're going to have the games. What people want to watch is the games, and that's what's going to happen. See, and the free world didn't care enough about what we're doing to try and re register the dis their dis uh, what do you call it their um, discomfort or their dislike of it by not sending their athletes they sent them see we're you know we're killing we're uh, we got our muslims locked up in concentration camps we're harvesting organs from live prisoners uh, whose crime is that they you know are people we don't like not that they've done anything and look at that we were still allowed to have the olympics we were you know, considered legitimate and acceptable enough by the the so-called world community to hold the Olympics and nobody didn't send their athletes. Uh, we did pretty well out of it. So that I think is, you know, I th it'll be interesting to see how this plays out three or four years from now. Because one thing does tend to lead to another. And sometimes if you won't do the, the necessary, do the hard work uh, over something like the Olympics and say boycott them, that, that leads to you know, the, the other bad guys tend to think, well, we can get to get away with a lot. You know, look at how, you know, we're doing all this. Nobody stopped us. Nobody really, uh, you know, showed us that, showed anyone that they were that concerned about it. And we're going to do more. And say these things tend to say one th they get worse and worse. And, you know, it's a little hard to predict exactly how things will play out. But I think by not taking a stand here, I think the... Um, we're going to pay for this later on would be my sense. The, um, <clears throat> a final question for you. Um, the Taiwanese, the Taiwanese air force ran a series of intercepts here within the last few days. The Taiwanese, I believe it was secretary of defense came out and said that, um, we can defend the Island against a, a Chinese assault, um, or words to that effect. If I didn't get that quote, right. Um, uh, what is the, uh, what kind of effect, um, you're there in Taiwan, what kind of effect is though, are those things having on the population and, and the national discourse of Taiwan? Oh, I, you know, of course the defense minister has to say certain things and, you know, and, and make no mistake, the Taiwan military would, would be able to fight and it would be costly for the Chinese to try anything, but they, they definitely need help. But um, you find that in thinking any society, most people go about their daily lives and they don't think about these existing, you know, these kind of threats. You know, and, and the Chinese have had, you know, goodness, decades to just kind of get used to the threat and nothing's happened. So you say the, the public at large, it, it's not as if this is at the top of their minds. People who think about it, you know, they are rightly concerned, uh, and I say, or people whose job it is to think about it, that there is a is serious concern about it, of course. Uh, but it's, um, you know, as you, if if there isn't a, enough support of the right sort by the free world, that Taiwan, you gradually find yourself just worn down, and that's. You know, not all that hard to understand how that works. You just get tired of 
constantly being under pressure, feeling like you don't have any real friends. Um, and at some point, you do wonder if PA people will just give up. Um, and that's why the what the Americans taking the lead, why, why, why it's so important, you know, that they do provide the support for Taiwan. They say there's a psychological aspect to all of this, to feel like you have some friends. Uh, but also there's the very real sort of operational capabilities that are required to, um, as I say, be able to make yourself such a tough nut to crack. Nobody will, will come after you. And whether or not that support is being given, I, I think there's real doubt about it. But there's more, um, There's as you, you've touched on, there's more of a recognition in the U.S. Uh, that Taiwan is important and that more needs done, more than there's ever been in my lifetime or at right least, no I, I, think I, would, I would i would absolutely agree with you there i have never seen a time you know in my lifetime that that taiwan has been cool to you know hang out with embrace um has garnered as much attention as it does now um has been the focus of military efforts around it as it is now so i mean taiwan ascending you know, yeah, it's it also well, the I think, we're, and it seems it seems yeah. to be yes. I think so. You know, but the way I think the just to be accurate is probably after the the derecognition of Taiwan around 1979. Um, before that, of course, Taiwan was got lots of attention and importance. But that's real right. once we recognized China at Taiwan's expense. That's in so yeah, that's just a function of us having lived a long time. Um, but in that 40 years, that this is the first time that I can recall uh, this much interest being shown in in the, the in the in the nation, and uh, you know also a recognition that the lose it and or, or if um, you know we don't defend Taiwan, that we'll pay for this uh, throughout the region and and everywhere on Earth as well. Uh, so you know here here we are. All right. Now, what are you writing next? Oh goodness, I'm behind a little bit, so I've got to. Um, uh, well, what's what's your excuse? What's your excuse? What's your excuse for being behind? It's not like they have a, a great Thanksgiving celebration in Taiwan, right? They, it's not one of their not one of their traditions they embrace. No, no I don't need excuses. That I just it's my nature just to just be like the one of the laziest people on the planet. But uh, so I was going to write something about the Biden Xi meeting. Uh, and then this head of J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon, he <laughs> made this statement the other day. I thought I would write something about that, um, but I, you know, because I'm sort of I get struck. By wait, wait, things. tell tell everybody what Jamie Dimon said. If you if you didn't catch this, this is priceless. This is up there with who is the actor John Cena? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Remember him like yeah. cr almost yeah. crying. Uh, making this apology to the Chinese people about something that he said, but Jamie Dimon, in some on some kind of panel, at some kind of uh, dinner or meeting, was asked about what, how long will um, J.P. Morgan last? Or yeah, that's I think that was his punchline or something. Yeah, he's the head of J.P. Morgan, the big bank, and he was as you said, he was it was. Um, it was, it was like the some the context was as I recall the 
it was the hundred. Somebody mentioned the hundredth anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party or such like, and he said, "Well, J.P. Morgan's hundredth anniversary is now too, and we'll probably outlive the Chinese Communist Party." And he probably <laughs> shouldn't have said that, but you, you always know when you've said one thing too many. So the uh, the Chinese, of course, took offense at this, and he, you know, groveled and you know beat his forehead on the floor and uh, do the other things you do when you're on your knees, I suppose. And um, he, uh, yeah, and the Chinese thing is that the Chinese let him off pretty easily. Remember they had that, there was some guy at a Marriott Corporation call center who hit like when the Hong Kong protests were going on. The Chinese demanded Marriott fire him. With Jamie Dimon, they let him, they say they let him up pretty easy. Uh, and the reason is obvious that China doesn't have enough foreign exchange. It doesn't have money people want. And they count on companies like Jamie Dimon's JP Morgan to shovel billions, tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars into China to fund the Chinese war machine. And that is exactly why they let him up uh, easy. And it's not hard for, you know, the, the JP Morgan is desperate to get into uh, into China you know, to get a cut of other people's money. Uh, and to me, that was the sort of the, the significant thing is that they didn't they didn't demand he be fired. Uh, they just demanded that he, you know, they I don't think they even had to demand. He uh, willingly uh, apologized profusely. Uh, so the Chinese, um, as I say, did, they, they went easy on him. But it showed you have these masters of the universe who like to talk tough about unfairness in America and how American politicians are idiots and this and that. And then the, the Chinese sort of uh, snap their fingers and these guys look like trained monkeys. Uh, and that, uh, that was on display uh, big time uh, with him. Yeah, the only thing missing was the, uh, you know, what is that, the uh, organ grinder, that little grinder box that when, uh, when they crank it up, the monkey dances. And Pretty uh, much, you know, and yeah, you know, we give these guys so much uh, attention because they because they have money, and we think we attribute to them these superhuman powers and, and unusual brilliance. But it's no more appropriate than giving it to Henry Kissinger, maybe less so. Uh, you know, these are guys who have mastered some small. It's like some small behavior activity, which is you know finance, and. That they've set it up so that they get fabulously wealthy, but that's all they can do. They don't, you know, really have no much more than that. So we do tend to give the so-called masters of the universe on Wall Street more credit than they deserve. And in this particular guy's case, you know, he is, you know, lauded for having avoided the the risky investments that got so many banks in trouble in 2008 during the financial collapse, but what nobody talks about is that he was actually yelling at his guys to get in on those investments because he said they were missing the boat, you know, that everyone else was getting rich off of them and J.P. Morgan was missing it. And it was just his good fortune that the collapse came before his guys could get in on it. Uh, so these people, you know, as I say, that, um, you know, pet monkey sort of uh, expression isn't all that unfounded, so... Right. Where do you buy an underwear? You buy an organ grinder. <laughs> Where do you? I suppose on eBay there must be one for sale. There's got, yeah, there's got to be the internet, Grant. Come on. The okay. um, all right. So we will look for your piece on the Biden G summit, 
or uh, or something along those lines. But uh, yeah, the, you I, you could do a lot of fun stuff with the Jamie Diamond stuff. Come on. I have a line that if I'm, it's so good that I didn't think of it, but uh, it's so good that um, I'm hoping I can use it. <laughs> it'll be a surprise it's a, it just it says everything but uh, it'll I'm, be a secret yeah. I'm trying to think the last great line I heard actually it was a Bill Lynn line um, and he wrote it in this little uh, kind of snit fight that he's in with um, he wrote it in this little cat fight that he's in with the Van Riper brothers. And um, so Lynn's, oh, I wish I could remember the line. But at the end of this, and he is the snark, right? He's the snarkiest of all snarks. And uh, I, I don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go looking for it, but, um, well, maybe I will. Give me one second to see if I can find it. If I, cause I thought I sent something to the, to my friends about it, and if I do, it's a great line. Um, JPEG. Uh, it's a Word document. Where the hell would I put it? A uh, new maritime strategy. Wednesday recovered. November seventh. What? No, I can't find it. Um, but it's one of the better, I'll go find it. And when you come back on again, I will have it for you. But, you know, a very, very pithy line. Even if you even if you say, you know, the article's a piece of shit, but that is a great line. Um, um, you have to respect that. So I've, I look forward to whatever your pithy line is. I look forward to reading it. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. All right. Okay. All right, Grant, thank you very much. Okay, thanks. I'm glad to weigh in. All right, there you have it. Tuesday, the last day of November in 2021. Yeah, you got that going for you. December tomorrow. Yeah, the month of my birth. Not really looking forward. Not really looking forward to that. But hey, it is what it is. Yeah. So my thanks to Grant for coming on today. Interesting conversation. Um, honestly, you know, we're, we're organizations like NATO and like the UN when we look at things like Taiwan, when we look at things like um, the Ukraine. Weren't, wasn't the UN the place where this stuff was supposed to go to be peacefully resolved? And, you know, relative to NATO, I mean, 
you deter through strength, not through weakness. And strongly worded statements. You know, when, when you're strong, you don't need to make strongly worded statements. You just say shit like, we're confident that no matter what happens, we'll be in a position to make sure the right things happen for the Ukraine. Right? You know what that's code for? Go ahead, motherfucker. Watch what happens. But what are we afraid of? Vladimir Putin and his economy? Oh, no, Mac. He's a nuclear power. Well, so are we. So why are we afraid to be strong in the face of his bullying? And the only thing you do when you're weak in front of bullies is you enable their violence. You got to stand up to them. Right? You got to stand up to them. But NATO, weak as shit, right? Joe Biden, weak as shit. You know, the strongest thing Biden has done is that after he didn't confront Xi about the origin of COVID and allowing a a impartial investigation to take place, he invited Taiwan to the democracy summit. That's the most courageous thing he's done. Yeah, that's not so courageous. Disobedient, right? You're supposed to stand for something, right? At least I thought you were. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I am, though. Peace comes through strength, okay? Peace comes from your adversaries knowing with certainty that it will be too expensive, it will be too bloody. And they will not win. So weakness only encourages violence. I mean, look. Look at the cities that have gone forward with defunding the police. I just saw a headline this morning that the city of Oakland, California is now refunding the police. Wow. Amazing, right? Look at the violent crime statistics if you want to see what weakness gets you in a city. Okay. Now, I think everybody agrees that we need, you know, police departments that are, you know, very restrained in the use of violence. We expect that as citizens. But let me tell you, that job of a police officer, not so easy. Okay, but still, some of the shit we've seen, what, that female police officer? Traffic stop. Think she's grabbing her taser and grabs her pistol and shoots a guy and kills him? Are you shitting me? What is that? I mean, just, I mean, come on, as a citizen. All right, there's been what? The Philan, what was that guy's name? Castillo? He's just telling the cop, hey man, I've got a concealed carry permit, I've got a pistol. And the guy shoots him four times. You can hear the guy freaking the fuck out. So that shit needs to... And then the other... This is all in Twin City shit. And what was the third... The third episode was the Australian woman who's coming to the car, the police car, after she called police, they show up and she approaches the car, this idiot cop, right? They're both sitting in the car. 
he pulls his weapon out. He shoots across the cop, in front of the cop driving the car, out the window, shoots her in the abdomen and kills her. So we're not like talking about you missed it by a little bit. Not even fucking close. So do we expect more from our police departments? Yeah. But you know what that means? You got to give them the training. And what happens is we don't have enough to, to have a shift where you can go train on a regular basis. Why? We just don't have enough cops. What does that have to do with? That has to do with the police budget. Oh, yeah. So if you want a well-trained police force, you got to give them the opportunity to do something other than go to work and go out on patrol. You have to have extra cops that can take over those shifts so that those guys and girls can go to their training days so that they can stay at a high level of training. That costs money. Oh, right, right. And maybe there should be some regional organization for police forces and there should be some regional training center so we can get everybody to a certain baseline. Hmm. Well, that's something to think about. Yeah, it is. So, anyway, have a great day. Merry Christmas to everybody. To everybody else, happy holidays. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. I'm out. See you tomorrow.